Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we look at what appears to be a crushing victory for Australia in the World Health Assembly, but which could be a crushing defeat, or a victory for China, or we actually don't really know. So we'll talk about that. Plus, we'll be talking to Gideon Rosner, Director of Policy, about his wonderful new podcast, The Heretic, which of course tells the story of Peter Ridd and his battles with JCU and his battles to tell the truth about climate change. We'll also be looking at the looming stoush between Facebook and Google on the one hand and the ACCC on the other, as the ACCC and the federal government try to get these social media platforms to pay big bucks for the news produced by publishers across Australia. All that on more on a podcast brought to you, of course, by the Institute of Public Affairs, which, amongst other things, is the publisher of this fine magazine, the IPA Review, which is currently hitting the mailboxes of IPA members right across Australia. To find out how you can get that magazine, join the IPA, go to ipa.org.au. We'll also, in this podcast, as always, be looking at our books and culture picks, which include a rare thing, a free-to-air uh, program that's actually a hit, and that of course is Lego Masters, and you can hear Berg chuckling in the background as he, I think he's going to throw to his uh, his children to talk about that show. That's uh, that's my plan. At least it takes some of the work out from me. That, that's right. Share the load. Share the load. Um, Gideon Rosner will be here with our obligatory Netflix show, which in this week is something which focusing on psychedelics. Uh, so that will no doubt be interesting. So. Uh, Tune in, turn on and drop out, uh, but not until after you've listened to that. And I'll be talking about an old classic, Peter Coleman's history of the Congress for Cultural Freedom and anti-communism as it played out after World War II. But first up, Chris, the World Health Organization, China, etc., etc. What has a lot of lot of breaking news overnight, in fact? What's been happening? A lot of breaking news overnight um, uh, and a long substantive build-up that um, has put China at odds with the vast majority of the rest of the world. Australia not just included, but Australia is actually been the lead. So um, the World Health Assembly um, uh, passed a motion to establish an independent review of the coronavirus and the um, performance of the World Health Organization, the um, organization that it governs, um, that Australia and the European Union had actually led the um, push for that motion, but ultimately China signed on. Now we are told that we will be receiving a, quote, impartial, independent and comprehensive um, review of the, uh, well, here's the thing. Is the review of the origins of COVID-19? So does the review, will the review go into detail about where it first emerged? Or is the review just about the performance of the World Health Organization? Now, the um, World Health Organization will be taking the lead in this review. So you might think, well, it's already set up to favor the World Health Organization um, uh, the WHO's performance and to um, be very supportive. But it's also backed by China, so it's very unlikely to go into any great detail about exactly when and where the virus emerged in or around Wuhan. So that's where we have landed. Um, I think we might just first throw to Gideon. There's a lot to talk about about the World Health, Health Organization, but it seems to be coming to a head, doesn't it? Well, it seems to. I'm not boundlessly optimistic that this inquiry will have any effect. I don't think we'll really get to the bottom of what's going on in the WHO. I mean, this whole thing to me has an element of poacher gamekeeper about it. I mean, to me, the, the, the what's becoming clear is that the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party have been systematically manipulating uh, and indeed almost colonising every international forum under the sun from the UN to the WHO, uh, to the WTO downwards for quite some time. Um, Do we really trust the China-dominated WHO to investigate itself? I'm just not satisfied that that there'll be any real catharsis, any real ventilation of the substantive issues. The best, uh, and, you know, you're going to roll your eyes at me as the Trump fan that I am, but the best assessment of the WHO's performance was Donald Trump's letter yesterday, a four-page letter which he sent to Dr. Tedros, uh, 
which contained an extraordinary charge sheet. I mean, most of it I, I sort of knew about anyway, but really collated all the, 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 the failures of where the WHO dropped the ball on this. And the figure I kept going to on Sky or wherever else I talk about this is this that the, the, the data indicates that if China had taken action early and if the WHO had sort of tried to force their hand a little bit earlier, say three weeks earlier than they actually did, we would have lowered or that there would have been a 95% lower global infection rate. Yeah, and, and I do commend, and we should put up in the show notes, the letter that Donald Trump um, uh, sent to the Director General of the WHO, because it is, it's a four or so page letter that actually details in, in quite, quite, um, uh, quite compelling detail exactly how the WHO messed up here. And what, what's interesting to me is that it was only because um, of countries that the WHO has systemically ignored, like Taiwan, that we knew about the severity of the disease early on, um, uh, or, or as early as we uh, as we ultimately did, um, because Taiwan had Taiwan obviously has invested in a lot of um, uh, surveillance of the Chinese state, and Taiwan was able to detect that there was something very strange going on in Wuhan, and there was very likely to be a really dangerous disease on the loose. It's only because of them that the rest of the world really understood rather than the World Health Organization, whose job it is, which is what we pay the World Health Organization to do. And, and I guess I guess the other point to make, though, about Taiwan is they've had an extremely low rate of infections and deaths, they, despite obvious proximity to China, population density, all the factors that were sort of common to Wuhan. So if, if, if the rest of the world knew what Taiwan knew, uh, then maybe our response would have been a, a whole lot different. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think this is fascinating, not so much for what it will tell us about coronavirus, which is probably not very much, but how this has played out in as an example of the geopolitics of the world. If you read the Australian media, you, you'd, you'd swear that this has just been a stoush between China and Australia ever since Scott Morrison said, yes, we should have a, an inquiry. And uh, in fairness to Scott Morrison, he was... Uh, possibly the first leader outside the US to actually say that unequivocally that, yes, we should. But the reality is the motion that went through the World Health Assembly was led by the EU. Uh, this was not Scott Morrison on his own. It was not our motion. Uh, I'm sure there were diplomats doing some work behind the scenes. Greg Hunt did a good job. But you know this is part of a global suspicion of China um, that... A, lot of, a lot's changed in Europe as a result of this. I mean, I think the scales fell from the eyes of a lot of Americans, you know, sort of 2016, 2017, uh, and we seem to be seeing this playing out in Europe. Now, what you get, of course, though, is a diplomatic solution because China does have influence in the WHO, just like it does in all of these international organisations. So that's why I'm equivocal about whether this is actually a victory or a defeat. As an inquiry... It's not independent. It's not impartial. It's not just going to look at the WHO's performance. It's not going to go into the origins of the... doesn't mention China. So, and but this is the context for Trump's thing, though. So Trump then uh, declined the opportunity to address the World Health Assembly, unlike Xi Jinping. Uh, he's, he's written the letter saying, well, if you don't pull your act together, you know, we're, we're out of here. And the trouble is when... A, America vacates, that actually just leaves, leaves the field to China. So I, I think it's a microcosm of everything that's going on in the world, uh, sort of international governing organisations at the moment and the dilemmas that we have as we try and work through what to do with China. I think that's right, Scott. And that, that, that is a neat summarization of the challenge that we have right now because um, the World Health Organisation obviously is not performing in the way that it we, we require it to perform. And I've been writing and looking at, at the World Health Organization for the better part of a decade. I wrote about it, some really poor performance in the early months of the Ebola crisis um, uh, some decade ago. Um, uh, it, it, it underperforms. It, it does everything that we um, uh, annoys us about public health agencies. So it you know overly, overly focuses on um, uh, non-transmissible diseases like obesity and um, uh, and alcohol dependence and so forth and tobacco control, but uh, so it 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 does that at the expense of focusing on um, 
transmissible diseases, which is viruses and uh, Ebola and COVID and all that sort of thing. But it, the thing, it's also the thing, highly... Sorry, go yeah, the, yeah, the things that you actually need an international organisation well, yeah. for. And this comes to the dilemma, right? So... If the so the United States has temporarily frozen the funding to the World Health Organization, and has suggested that unless it reforms itself, it is going to um, remove all funding and it's going to make that freeze a permanent um, removal. Now that, given that the United States is the dominant funder of the World Health Organization, um, uh, it goes US, then the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and China, I should say, is way, way, way down the list. Um, this would be catastrophic for the World Health Organization. Now, yes, it's a global bureaucracy. Yes, it's sort of the United Nations swamped. But it's also precisely, if the globe is going to come together, if countries are going to cooperate, this is precisely what we need them to cooperate on. We need them to cooperate on transmissible diseases that go across, that don't care about borders. And, and the challenge that we have now is, okay, well, if the United States withdraws from the WHO, and functionally well, and makes the WHO defunct, we will need a replacement. We need a better replacement. We need a replacement that's not such in hock to Chinese totalitarianism. But we actually need a World Health Organization or an equivalent. Um, it's a very, very important thing. And it's a, it's a huge shame that they've just been so incompetent and incapable in this crisis. I mean, Chris, do you, do you really think we need... I mean, it'd be, it'd be preferable if we had a sort of a, a permanent committee of nations to oversee and be ready when things like this occur. But uh, is, is it... I, I think that when, when, it looks like, when you look at the World Health Organization, it's doing more harm than good. It, 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 if you look at some of its pronouncements early on about human-to-human transmission, about the uh, advisability of border closures and the like, countries that acted on the advice disadvantaged themselves. I think multilateral forums such as the WHO are doing more harm than good. It'd be good if there was a, a, a sensible one, but isn't it the case that these organisations do just get engulfed by the swamp and the international you know, cocktail party brigade? Well, look, look I mean, you might, you might say it's sort of functionally impossible to get the sort of organization, not an assembly, but the organization that you would need to deal with something like that. And that's a that's a that's a fair critique. We might just say that any organization is inherently, any international organization is going to be inherently incapable. So why are we wasting our time doing it? But I think that um, to the extent that any international cooperation is important on any dimension in any policy area, this would have to be either the first or the second. Um, ones that you would you would focus on because the need for um, uh, health monitoring, the need for health um, uh, coordination and cooperation is actually really important, and we're seeing why it's important. We're seeing why it's important in the very failures of the WHO because if the WHO had acted better and more honestly and more trustworthy at the start of this crisis, we would not be in the crisis we are today. Can I can I say one thing? Um, in looking at the WHO, so they were absolutely a terrible performance in terms of not declaring a pandemic earlier, which is like that is the smoking gun, and and this idea that it was under the influence of of China, I think, is is the rebuttable proposition. Like it's try try and prove me wrong uh, that that's actually what was happening behind the scenes with um, China communicating with uh, Dr. Tedros Adhanom. Gabrielsus, which I've been wanting to say all morning. Hmm. Um, Hold on. <laughs> but actually, you can't hang the ridiculous response in Western countries to the pandemic, this, this lockdown with its completely unproven epidemiological basis uh, on the WHO. It wasn't Dr. Tedros who was saying, you must shut down your economies and, and you know, collapse the world economy by 20%. That's been entirely driven by national governments and domestic politics and our own chief medical officers. I've even seen some things coming out of the WHO uh, which have been quite laudatory of that, uh, that great uh, counterexample, which is, uh, which is Sweden, uh, which is by no means a laissez-faire. They haven't just let it rip, but they've, uh, they're not having the sort of lockdown that we've you know, had in Australia, New Zealand, UK, they've taken a very different approach, and the Who's basically said, "Well, yeah, that that works, you know, that that, that that's managing it." So there's actually a lot of things we can criticise the Who for, but this this pickle that we've got ourselves into is not one of them. 
No, there's there's a massive amount of um, policy failure and policy errors, policy experimentation. But I, I think it the performance of the World Health Organization in precisely the moments that we needed them to perform well, which is in the um, uh, basically in January and in early February, um, made the crisis worse. It made country it made some countries complacent about the danger of the virus. It argued Correct. against some of the measures that were turns out most effective in preventing the spread of the virus in the early days. So for instance, Australia's border closures, the United States border closures to China, um, arguing against those sorts of policies. We have established this organization, we as in the globe have established an organization to coordinate response. And when countries looked to that organization, uh, they, it was let, they, those countries were let down. The World Health Organization failed in its primary mission. Thank you, Chris. And speaking of science, of course, one of the issues closer to home has been the attempts of the uh, professor of physics at James Cook University, Peter Ridd, to tell the truth on climate science and what's actually happening with the Great Barrier Reef. And that got him fired, as anyone who hasn't been living under a rock for the last 10 years will know. And I'm now pleased to introduce, uh, on this topic, uh, Gideon Rosner, who's just produced a terrific podcast called The Heretic. Uh, Tell us what's in The Heretic and what what can listeners expect when it goes online this coming Friday, Gideon? Well, thank you, Scott. And uh, just to give a bit of background on on The Heretic... um, I think one of the things you learn pretty quickly when you work at the RPA is that John Roscombe in particular is a is a real early adopter and he got very into a series called The Dropout uh, and you know which is sort of what they call a true crime podcast serialized documentary a bit like Teacher's Pet and those sort of things. So he came to me one day and said that we should do a similar thing about the Peter Ridd case and initially I thought that might be a little bit of a challenge because it's not a, a murder or anything. It's a workplace relations dispute in the Federal Circuit Court. But I got a little recording device off Saul here at the RPA and went up to Queensland and rented a car and started driving around. And I interviewed Peter and um, Ann Carter, the widow of Bob Carter, who went through a very similar thing at JCU. I spoke to the Queensland branch of the National Tertiary Education Union. I spoke to Peter's legal team. I spoke to former students. And I ended up with a really, really good narrative and a really, really good story. So this is a three-part series uh, told again in the style of Teacher's Pet and things like that, but about the inside story, you know, what Peter said about the Great Barrier Reef, which got him into trouble, what JCU did to him and even you know hardcore fans, so to speak, of the Peter Ridd story probably don't know half what went on at JCU. Uh, and then how Peter fought back in court and how he assembled a legal team and how he took on a juggernaut a taxpayer funded juggernaut like james cook university so uh it it leaves off when jcu files their appeal which is coincidentally next week which the rpa will be covering as well but for anybody who wants a close look at went on went on with the peter ridd case so far uh it, it the digital team here put together a really really good product and and i hope people enjoy it it sounds it sounds fantastic um uh gideon and i've really enjoyed it um, what do you think we should, what, what, what do you think the takeaway of the Peter Ridd story is? Um, and there's a lot of implications about everything from the way climate science is practiced to universities and freedom of speech. But, but what, what would you say the big, what, what have you taken away most strongly from your very close watching and participating in this case? Well, there are, there are three sort of morals or lessons from the Peter Ridd case. One is what happened to Peter just as, a, as an objectively bad story on its own. I mean, what happened to Peter having his email searched, being told he couldn't talk to his wife, being blasted out of a university where he served loyally for 30 years plus. Uh, so that's one element. Uh, the second element, obviously, it's about climate change. It's about how climate change is, is inherently, obviously, a scientific issue, but it has become so warped with interests and... Uh, different agendas with with the with with um the fact that to be honest a lot of these research institutions have uh a, a vested interest in there being a problem to solve with the great barrier reef and so on around climate change but the third and most important thing getting to your question chris is really a look at how 
the mission of universities has become so tainted by commercial considerations. Now, if universities were wholly private institutions, they could run themselves as commercially or as uncommercially as they like. You know, that's, that's the free market for you. But we as a society have decided to spend billions upon billions of dollars every year to create public squares of intellectual inquiry. And that is being lost in the hunt for prestige, for grant funding, for flashy new buildings for international students and so on. And what that has done is that has meant that people like Peter, whose views go against the grain and who threaten the narrative and indeed the, the prestige of universities by belling the cat on sloppy scientific research, are marginalised and indeed blasted out. It goes to a something that, and the most one of the most interesting interviews was the bloke from the NTU, Michael McNally, who I interviewed, who was a very good guy, uh, who indicated that it really shed light on the, the, the tension between university administrators and the professoriate. Now, the IPA has been very critical of the lack of balance at universities and some of the subject qualities, but at the end of the day, the real problem is the fact that we don't have enough academic freedom. And if there was untrammeled academic freedom, you'd have a few a few sort of funny characters who you know put swastikas on Israeli flags and all sorts of other things, but you would also get 10 more Peter Rids. You would also get... 10 more people who uh, can put forward a viewpoint that we don't commonly hear in academia, but that is really being stifled. I think there's an interesting, and I've been thinking about this with um, uh, Sinclair Davidson, of course, my RMIT colleague, um, and been thinking about the Peter Ridd case as a um, the first in what we expect to see a really substantial number of these sorts of cases into the future. Um, the reason is that universities have been encouraged by the government to focus on um, making sure that their research that is funded by the by the Commonwealth is um, of a high impact. So what that is doing is encouraging academics to spend more time in the public space. Now, ideal, I, I think that's good. So I think that we spend all this money on research, that we should make sure that the researchers that we are paying for are engaged in the public space. But it puts academics much more in the centre of political disputes. And it puts those academics um, uh, in a position that they're not just arguing with each other in unread peer-reviewed journals. They're arguing with each other in the press. And um, Peter Ridd's crime, such as it was, was to argue in the press and in popular media and with through in material published by the IPA um, in Climate Change, the Facts 2017, was it? 2017? Yes, that's right. Um, in Climate Change, the Facts 2017, he was arguing about the state of peer-reviewed science in a popular environment. And that seems to be what has annoyed um, James Cook University, the fact that he wasn't just criticising his colleagues in unread journals, he was doing so in the public. Now, I think that's good and we should be encouraging it, but it's going to bring up many more of these challenges and many more of these um, disputes because I don't think the universities are really ready for the implications of that. And the issue that I think Gideon's drawn out in his podcast has, has been, though, that's the environment, Chris. So what you just said, I think, you know, highlights the intellectual tension, if you like, the institutional tension. But legally, um, it was very, very fortunate for Peter that uh, there was this clause in the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement that the NTU had negotiated around academic uh, inquiry, uh, academic freedom. And uh, as, as Gideon has noted, uh, the universities are now seeking to have that removed. And uh, this is why I mean, we, we, we don't, haven't talked about it so much recently, but this this is the critical issue that came out of the French inquiry into free speech on campus. Uh, it was not an inquiry that went anywhere near as far as it should have. Its recommendations were a bit soft, but it was at least talking about a model code of conduct. Um, and and to, to my knowledge, there's only been a couple of universities which have uh, paid any attention to it at all. And so we even while these tensions are growing, Chris, we've potentially got the universities uh, manoeuvring out of the only restriction on them, basically uh, firing any professor for being, you know, in the, you know, in the case as in the case of Peter Reed, for being uncollegial, which essentially means saying anything which could be taken to uh, be critical of a colleague or the university. And we're seeing this 
all over the place. We're seeing University of Queensland trying to expel students. We've had universities uh, in West Australia threatening to um, uh, fire an academic over uh, comments he'd made about the, the governance of the university and reliance on foreign students. Uh, it is coming up again and again, but I, I really worry about uh, what the next Peter Ridd might actually be able to do about it. Not much, I suspect. Yeah, no, you're right. But I wouldn't put it all on university management, I have to say. I think that my reading of the situation is that academic freedom on campus is seen by a lot of academics as a somewhat niche issue because they don't think that their role is to get involved in issues that might be controversial. Now, that's that's by design. That's a lot of people um, uh, just study things that aren't inherently politically controversial. They're not going to um, people aren't going to push back against them. They might be, if you work in physics or if you work in statistics, um, it's very unlikely that your um, academic freedom is going to be trampled on. So it becomes just a, a lesser consideration in the negotiations with management that the NTU does reflect as well. And I, um, and, and it, it, I think it's really good what the NTU does uh, has done in the Peter Ridd case, but I wouldn't um, uh, put them on purely the side of good on all questions of academic freedom. Is that um, right? What, what makes you say that, Chris? I'm, uh, I'm interested in that. Look, so so my reading of the situation is that the unions have um, not overemphasised academic freedom in the negotiations of the enterprise bargaining agreements over the last decade or so. Uh, now, I don't think that's really because the union's particularly opposed to academic freedom. I think it's more that the members of the union just don't believe that that's a really core part of um, uh, uh, one of the core considerations that they're fighting for. They are yeah. much more focused on things like, um, uh, you know, employment conditions and salaries and whatnot. And, and you know, that makes sense. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it does. But, um, uh, and, and you've also got to remember that the NTEU um, represents not just academic staff, but all professional staff of the university. So all the administrative staff and so forth. So um, I think that the NTEU should, and, you know, because it acts on my behalf, I don't, <laughs> not that I'm a member or anything like that, but it, it, it is, it, currently it's in the middle of making decisions about my, variations to my contract <laughs> which i just think is horrible um uh but but i i think that the ntu and its members have um accidentally let themselves down by not focusing on on um, academic freedom more than they have get get in just be uh i actually want to come back to the heretic um can you can you tell us about the structure of the heretic how many how many episodes have you made yeah sure it's uh, three episodes about 40 minutes in length each on average, uh, and basically the it begins with, uh, you know, episode one is about Peter and what he said. So it talks about a little bit about Peter, what his life was like at JSU. Again, I speak to a former student who talks about how wonderful and and uh, quirky he was on campuses, as you as you'd expect for anybody who knows Peter and knows what a lovely bloke he is. Uh, and also talks to Jennifer Marahasi and a few other people about what Red said about the, the initial findings about the Great Barrier Reef that got him into trouble. Episode two is about climate change, the facts 2017, and the chapter that he wrote for us, and the subsequent interview on Jones and Credlin that got him into trouble with J JCU and the years in which he was put dragged from one official star chamber into the other, um, culminating, obviously, in his unlawful sacking. We also hear from Ann Carter, as I said, who talks about what happened to Bob. We hear from Michael McNally from the NTEU, um, and then the third episode is talking about what how Peter fought back, about how a chance meeting with Jennifer Marahasi and then John Roskam led to the assembly of a legal team and how, uh, again, the, the you know small, scrappy, but very, very competent legal team funded by Peter's GoFundMe account managed to topple the taxpayer resources of a university and the courtroom drama that followed that. You mentioned you, you mentioned there's a the appeal is next week. Do do we know the grounds of that appeal on on what they're trying to what they're trying to challenge? I haven't had I'm 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 sorry to say much of a chance to look at the court documents. I got sent them this morning, so I'm going to have a a quick look through. Um, but my understanding is nothing too surprising came out of submissions. Uh, I, I I'm I'm not sure which way exactly will will we'll go, um, but. It doesn't look like there's any real new ground there. 
from last time. So yep. we will see. And uh, for, for IPA members, the coverage will or will be uh, – you'll be able to get uh, – because it's all happening over video link, so you'll be able to get uh, request a live a, a stream a, a stream feed from the, the court registry and we'll be sending out an email this week to IPA members letting them know how to do that for anybody who wants to tune in. And also the IPA will be doing its own analysis and uh, commentary on the case from our studio. For those who want to listen to The Heretic right now, uh, it is exclusive to, and we're recording this on Wednesday morning, uh, it's been exclusive to IPA members. Uh, that's one of the, just like the IPA review is exclusive to IPA members. Uh, but this Friday it goes out on, on general release. And so we'll be sharing those links. Uh, if you're not already a member, you could join today and listen to that podcast but uh otherwise uh definitely have a listen it is an absolute cracker of a thing then gideon you've done a tremendous job uh you and the team thank you scott yeah it's, it was a lot of fun and now chris berg you've been following very closely the ACCC's digital platform inquiry and now what looks like a mandatory proposal to negotiate with revenue streams for publishers what's going on there chris well i have um this is a little bit involved so a very quick recap in december 2017 scott morrison who was the treasurer at the time uh directed the accc to do a large-scale inquiry into competition in digital platforms and competition for advertising markets and whether they were monopolies and so forth. The ACCC released a final report in July 2019, and they recommended that there would be a voluntary code of conduct to share revenue between um, uh, all the revenue that Facebook and Google, for example, were getting from um, digital advertising to share the revenue with newspaper um, companies and, and media companies. Uh, so that was that that was announced in 2019. In April, just last month, while we were talking about COVID-19, the government decided that that voluntary code of conduct should actually just be a mandatory code of conduct. So now the ACCC is in a position to design an enforceable code of conduct that takes money or requires Facebook and Google to pay money directly to news media organizations. I've got some incredibly strong views on this, but I might just ask Gideon what his um, uh, take is first. Well, firstly, Chris, I wonder if you could enlighten me because one thing, and we sort of had this conversation a bit before, but I've never been completely clear on what revenue the media outlets are losing from fa from Facebook and Twitter and social media, if anything. Surely... Google searches and Facebook shares and the like drive traffic to news websites from which they can derive advertising revenue. So firstly, can you just explain to me, and, and I'm sure for the listeners, what exactly the media companies are complaining about here? Yeah, so that, that's the um, $900 million or $8 billion question, isn't it? So um, the news media arguments um, allege that the fact that in the case of Google, Google takes a copy of, um, uh, of of news articles in order to, they call it spider them, in order to mm. um, uh, identify all the text and so forth so that it can be easily searched. Um, but more importantly, Google has the Google News service that they think is directly competing with the front pages of their websites. And it's the same with Facebook. So the news media outlets think that Facebook's feed is a competitor to the front page of the news outlets. Now, I, I'm, I'm very unconvinced by this argument for precisely the reasons that you raise. Um, because Facebook is actually, and Google are directing people to the websites of the news media outlets on which, uh, to, to the particular pages on which the news media outlets then serve advertising. Now, as a matter of logic, that doesn't seem substantially different from sending them to the front page rather than to the, the, the back end. But this is more of a just dispute about a long-run trend in advertising that the news media outlets think that many of these digital platforms somehow took the advertising that they used to cross-subsidize journalism um, and, and that the only way to have a sustainable journalism business is if um, uh, that cross-subsidization is by force returned. 
Uh, could, can I, before we get into this solution that the ACCC is proposing, which I do have problems with, um, in fairness, this is definitely a thing. Um, this is not a bit, it, these platforms don't drive traffic traffic back to the, the actual news websites. And um, I have a little data point here in, um, did I mention that the IPA review is out? And there's a, there's a terrific... Great edition, uh, by the way, Scott. I had a flick through last night. Thank you. And there's a terrific article uh, by uh, Paul Mitchell, who was an editor of uh, regional newspapers in uh, South Australia's Riverland for um, uh, for 17 years. Uh, a smashing bloke, great writer. And he, he's talked about the experience of recruiting graduates uh, into his newspapers over that period. And um, But one of, the, one of the things that he notes uh, along the way is he's interviewing... Uh, kids who presented to say, I want to be a journalist, you know, I'm passionate about news they write in their applications, as you would, would of course, and I definitely want to work for the insert name of Masthead here, um, full stop. But when he when he sits down to interview them and he, and he says, oh, yeah, so you're interested in news. Oh, yeah, yeah, I read, read a lot of news. And 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 what, what news sites do you look at? They almost invariably say, oh, Facebook or Google. Like that's that's the news outlet to them and, no, and, and when, when he actually yeah. he, has, he has to actually say to them no 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 that's 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 the social media platform but what's what's a news site and they go oh uh abc like they would they would never mention the age or the australian or the adelaide advertiser or whatever no, um, but you've got the the objection that that encapsulates is oh well unfortunately our brands aren't strong enough so people don't know when they're inherently reading an Australian or an age or an SMH or a fin review piece like that but it is absolutely the case that the um, links on Google News or the links on Facebook drive traffic to those websites now it may not be the case that once on those websites we have a particularly strong passion about it's uh, this company or that company but it is absolutely the case. And you know this because there's nothing more devastating for a news company these days than if Facebook changes its algorithm to make it harder or, or make it slower to um, uh, jump from one site to another. Um, they are absolutely reliant on that. Now, that's created a huge amount of resentment because they know that so much of their traffic is, is reliant on someone else's algorithm. No, I'm still disputing this. No, 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 no. It's not driving traffic to their bloody websites. They, 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 these social media platforms are uh, appropriating the brands of these organisations, and I'm telling you that the, the rising generation um, don't engage with those those masthead brands at all. No, and, well, look. Model being collapsed. There, sure, there is sure. there is well, definitely well, a, a legitimate public policy. Issue no, there isn't. on the table. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. Can so, I, I, can I, I just... In what world? In what world is it the responsibility of the government to care about brand engagement? Well, listen. Why do why do academics, uh, you know, get um, on retainers for when their work gets republished anywhere? Why why is that okay? Why do why do why do musicians um, get uh, funding back from ARIA every time their songs are played somewhere? You know we've, that, we've worked through sure, all these issues in all all sorts of other domains. That, that is the reuse. I mean, if if Facebook was republishing articles directly, then of course there would have but, to be some sort of copyright. But that's exactly what they're doing. You don't they're leave not, the Facebook platform. Yes, they do. They they publish links. So the ACCC's report suggests that there's a lot of um, pass-through. So people do actually click on the links. I'm sure a lot of people don't, but a lot of people do. And they do in a a way that has a material financial impact on, on those firms. Now, I understand that it is very upsetting for the newspapers to have lost the rivers of gold in classified advertising that sustained journalism as a business model through the 20th century. But it is not Facebook or Google that took the rivers of gold. The classified advertising platforms took the rivers of gold. And Facebook and Google sell a different product. Because they are selling a different product, a different advertising product, does not make them uh, owe money to another company. So let me, let me be really clear what's going on. This is a government, government-led extortion racket using the government um, where one company uses or one company set of companies uses the government 
to extort money from another set of companies. There is no more complexity to it than that. It is outrageous, absolutely outrageous that the uh, that some companies get to use the government to steal money from other companies, but that's where we are. Look, can I just make two points? Firstly, on in defence of these poor, you know, junior burger aspiring journalists who said they got their news off Google and Facebook. Look, I, you know, if somebody asked me what news brands I engage with, I'd say the Oz and um, and the Sky, and I read a bit of other papers like the Guardian and so on that I disagree with to get a different perspective. But broadly speaking, if I'm being perfectly honest, the first thing I do when I check my phone in bed in the mornings is not open up the Australian website. I as a matter of as a matter of habit, go to Twitter. And most of the stories I read with first thing in the morning are links that are curated for me by peers and by sundry other lunatics on that social media platform. Um, but the second point I would make is, to me, this is this debate, and, and I think there's another issue, Chris, with this, with the... the, the there's a subscription issue. You know, people don't aren't loyal to a paper. They don't say, "Oh, you know, I read the Oz in the mornings." They read a, a range of things, so that's for, causing further disruption in media business models. To me, this is analogous of the issues that the record industry and the music industry went through at the turn of the millennium with Napster and so on. Now, what what happened was that. Initially, the idea was floated to have what we have now with iTunes where, okay, you don't want people downloading your songs for free. That's fair enough. Why don't you just find a platform to sell songs for a smaller price? And record numbers, record companies resisted this because their business model was to bundle hit singles with nine other songs or whatever it is that you don't tend to listen to to sell an entire album. To sell a tenth of that album would have put a big dent in uh, their bottom line, but what they found was they couldn't resist it, and it took ten years for Apple to develop a, a with their blessing a platform where you could sell individual songs. And now we've reached a stage where we're all on Spotify, where you don't even download and purchase a song; you stream it, which means less money still. The point I'm making with all of this is newspapers and media companies. And I'm amazed there isn't already a because think about it this way: it's so annoying when you're reading a piece on the New York Times or the Telegraph, whatever else, and there's a paywall. And I don't want to subscribe to a newspaper for an outlet that I might read, you know, once every week or so on. Why has haven't the media companies found a platform to sell articles for a few cents or something to people who want to read them without having to subscribe and then building you know subscriber only content separately i mean the the the, the media companies wear some of the blame in this for not i'll tell you what what just demonstrates that this is an absolute nonsense so the media companies um have a tool on hand that they could prevent the um, particularly Google from accessing their sites. If they wanted to block Google News from um, providing links to their content, they can do so incredibly simply. And I've just pulled up on the Google support page how to block access to content on your site. You have to create a robots.txt file and um, onto your server and the Google spidering algorithm will not provide access now if that's what they wanted to do that's what they wanted to do yeah, but, but look, not, look you're talking it. you're talking about a technical solution i think gideon's um uh, example was absolutely opposite this was something that you know the music industry was able to work out you know it was a it was a product of litigation and um what why, why is the ACCC involved well there shouldn't be an ACCC but to the extent that it's, yeah. it's involved is it this is uh, supposedly an argument about bargaining power and this is one of those you know voluntary code of conduct mandatory code of conduct and it's supposedly an argument about um uh bargaining power and there is no doubt that google and facebook are behemoths on this scene and the relative bargaining power has shifted so i think it, it's it's naive to say that there's a technical solution for this because obviously the the control of eyeballs that the social media platforms have attained through network effects is now such that you know someone like rupert murdoch is supposedly the bogeyman of world news is definitely in a, in a uh, in an inferior bargaining position listen listen no you better go um what I, because what I do want to say is having said all that, 
I, I do think the industry is tremendously naive to believe that a little old Australia, a little old ACCC can somehow balance up this bargaining power. Peter Costello, chairman of, of Nine Entertainment, has has said that potentially the revenue stream is of the order of a billion dollars a year. I think News Corp estimates was uh, was six hundred million total across publishing industries. Two things are going to happen. First of all, Google and Facebook—they're Americans. They got lawyers. They're going to sue. They're going to litigate this as hard and for as long as they possibly can. So uh, it could be quite some time before this plays out. And the second thing is they are so agile and adept is they will find ways to make sure that it is not a billion dollars, it is $50 million because, for instance, the obvious thing to do is 99% of news that you read on social media is crap. And that's why you see things like BuzzFeed and so on are finally going under. Um, there is real journalism that these publishers provide, which is, I guess, has a, a unique value because it's a story you can only read on The Age or The Australian because it's a result of true investigative journalism. 99% of the rest of us is just blah, blah, blah. Just about anything written about federal politics in this country is just rubbish. So what I think will happen, this is my prediction, is Google and Facebook will just start employing um, donkeys to write copy about federal politics because <laughs> most of it's rubbish and they will very occasionally agree to pay for uh, an article out of the age or the Australian that actually represents new, true news, something that's unique that readers wouldn't have known about if they hadn't have read it. But the rest, the rest of it, they're not just going to pay for, you know, the, the you know Peter Van Onselen in the Australian. I wouldn't. So why would anyone else? So this, this, this is not going to be a billion-dollar-a-year transaction. But this feeds into another problem that we haven't talked about yet, which is, of course, that consumers will lose out from all of this. And in other, I mean, Australia is not the first company to attempt this. I think Portugal did, or you know, Chris helped me out. There are a couple that did, and in at least one of them, Google said, "Well, the hell with it. We're just not going to offer Google News in your country." Now, for me, as somebody who obviously deals with the media, like Google News is a fantastic, fantastic resource, and I would miss it a lot. If it went, hell, I'd even pay for it if push came to shove. Um, so I, I think, Scott, you're being overly optimistic. I don't think they bother litigating this a lot of cases. I think, well, the hell with it. Australia is a, is a small country. It's a small part of, our, part of our revenue base. We'll just block any and all links from the Australian's website. What that would also do is if I'm ever published in the Australian and so on, I won't be able to share my own articles. It will, it will really – there will be a lot of, as with all – big government solutions like this, there will be a lot of unintended consequences and our media landscape and all players in it, including the old mastheads, uh, will be worse for it. Let me make a slightly separate point as well, just building on what Gideon said. Australia has a really bad reputation on um, the regulation of technology companies, um, the taxation of, of technology and internet transactions and all those sorts of things. Um, and this only builds it. So if you invest in Australia, there is a chance that the Australian government will just decide to take some of your money and give it to another company. If, mm -hmm. they, if that other company lobbies really, really heavily and really, really well, um, this makes us a very, very highly risky place for investment. It is incredibly counterproductive. I know why the government is doing it. I know why people are lobbying for it. Nothing it, there, there is just no clear intellectual case for this policy. It is outright extortion, and it makes Australia a dangerous place to invest. We have a huge economic growth problem. I cannot fathom why the government thinks doing this sort of thing in the middle of a global economic crisis is a good idea. I think I think there's plenty of precedents around. I mean, all intellectual property. I mean, you're right. I mean, stealing is very it, common it, historically. It, it's government enforced extortion. <laughs> it's, it's, it's governments create. There's, there's, there's real of uh, stealing from private companies. Yeah, yeah. There's there's there's, there's real property. You know, there's actual you know things. Uh, the, that we can you know create and possess and trade, and then there's you know the various forms of intellectual property which has just been made up by government. You know, I I think getting like I said, Gideon's example is is very apposite. You know, we've we've actually been through this before. So dumb as as you think this idea may be, I I, I just cannot believe it is as as catastrophic as you, as you say it is. But but can I say although you know I'm a, a believer in in the concept of intellectual property. I know that's not particularly popular among a, among a lot of uh, libertarians like myself, but I do believe that if you write a book, you shouldn't, you know, some 
um, somebody shouldn't be able to republish it and not give you any royalties. But I'm just not seeing any intellectual property theft here, except in the cases of, you know, one bloke, anything I write, he copies and pastes the entire article into his newsfeed and flogs it <laughs> off. So you, you can have mechanisms to police direct intellectual property theft like that. Um, and if there was some instance in which an access to justice issue, for example, where the masters for whatever reason couldn't get redress out of Facebook and Google, that would be another issue. But we're not talking about intellectual property theft here. We are just talking about a mechanism to to share articles that, that has, for various reasons that are baked into the 20th century business model, starve companies of revenues. As, as Chris sort of said, I, I don't think we should be engaging in sovereign risk because a few legacy companies have not been good enough at, at, at adapting to change. I know that sounds harsh, but that's sort of what it sort of boils down to for me. Okay. I might also add that if you want to read more great content, do go to ipa.org.au. You are welcome, in fact, to republish it. All we ask is that you attribute it. You'll find many fine pieces there by Gideon Rosner, Chris Berg, and even me, Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, which I'm now holding up, for, I think, for the fourth time in this episode. <laughs> We've come to that part of the show where we talk books and culture. As I said, uh, we have a free-to-air program that uh, has been tremendously successful. So we should talk about that. It's like it's like falling on a you know on a golden golden egg in the middle of a forest or something like that. What's going on, Chris? It has been incredibly successful. And um, this week, in fact, I've been watching the Last Dance. But given that we spoke about it um, uh, last week in the last episode. Um, uh, the other show that I've been watching has been Lego Masters. Lego Masters is the incredibly successful um, Australian version of um, a British franchise. It was launched in the UK in 2017, um, uh, and the first season was aired in Australia last year, and the second season has just finished. There's also an American version. It is, um, it is just a... This is going to sound a bit corny. It is just a delight, Scott. It is just a really... <laughs> Nice show. Yep, that was corny. Uh, it is corny, but it, it, it's um uh it, the combination of Hamish Blake, who's just a very appealing, um uh appealing host, and um the Lego judge, who is a Lego certified professional that's described as the brick man, who's got some extreme dad energy. Um, tears up whenever um, he has to say goodbye to anybody in the show. It is just a really, really lovely show. Of course, it's just um, it's just massive at young schools, at primary schools and all that sort of thing. So it's all the kids are talking about um, in primary school when they um, manage to Zoom their friends. Uh, just, a, just, a, just a very wholesome piece of television. <laughs> <laughs> traditional virtues there, Chris, perhaps? Tradition, extremely traditional virtues. Are there moral lessons in this for us? Is there... uh, just work hard. Just, just sort of, no, there's nothing more heavy. It's not a, you know, it's, it's not don't. It's not a sort of treat your parents well. It's just a like, oh, you, you can work hard and be creative with uh, plastic bricks. And, um, and, and yeah, no, it's, it's, just, Made, it's just great fun, I have to say. Made by a fine Danish company. I might. I wonder whether it would be too indulgent for me to have a, a, a link to a story I wrote years ago about how um, Lego got into conflict with the Chinese government uh, when the oh, artist Ai oh. Weiwei uh, requested uh, a shit ton of uh, Lego bricks in order for to make an installation about right. <laughs> reflecting on the Chinese Communist Party. Only, only if uh, if I can do the same because I wrote an article about Lego many years ago as well, and I read all these Lego books and everything. Ah, I wrote about Ai Weiwei as well. Anyway, we will post both of those up on the, um, the show notes. <laughs> Here at the IBA, there's a political angle to everything. To everything, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I might go next because uh, Gideon's also closing with a program, whereas I have a book, a book I've been meaning to get around to reading uh, for some time. It's um, uh, Peter Coleman, uh, the late uh, lamented, um, uh, late and much loved uh, Peter Coleman, who was an editor of Quadrant, uh, leader of the Liberal Party in New South Wales, later a federal parliamentarian. Um, and one of those rare things, a uh, public intellectual on the uh, centre right of politics, uh, and he, in later years, wrote a book on the history of something called the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Uh, it was called the Liberal Conspiracy. Um, liberal in the uh, in the small L sense of uh, uh, classical liberals, believers in freedom. 
And these were this was an organisation that was uh, formed after World War Two, at a time when uh, Europe, everybody thought was was just going communist. Uh, there'd been a devastating war, a popular front with the Soviet Union uh, to defeat fascism, and then seeing that sort of wreckage of uh, what was then Europe. Uh, the Soviet Union was doing a, a very effective program of, of, of propaganda and agitation. Uh, they had front groups everywhere, the, the fellow travellers, they had the intellectuals in their pockets, and there just didn't seem to be any kind of alternative to this. And it was uh, intellectuals like Arthur Kersler, author of Darkness at Noon, uh, and a, a small number of others who uh, really wanted to see the values of freedom survive and also for the West to actually understand uh, what communism in practice in the Soviet Union was like. And, um, and so they got together in about 1950, uh, sort of 4950, uh, what became the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And this was really uh, intellectual labour. So Peter Coleman details all this in his, in his excellent book, which I've just read. And um, they created magazines, they started running events, and uh, I think it's a, it's a timely book. It, it had great success for about 10 years before it petered out. In a, the Australian arm spawned Quadrant, um, which survives in a, in a much more independent form. The Congress for Cultural Freedom no longer exists. It finished up being disbanded uh, in the 70s at a time when uh, it was discovered that some of its early funding had come from the CIA, and uh, this is un unfortunately not a, a, a conspiracy um, uh, accusation. It was the CIA really did give them some money, to which I can only say, well, good on them too, because <laughs> they they needed it at the time, and the US government had largely been asleep at the wheel. They uh, A lot of people in power in the US were still thinking of uh, the Soviet Union as their ally, as it had been during the war, and uh, the the shift to a Cold War mindset had only just begun. Um, Truman woke up, George Kennan uh, helped wake America up, but it was a long time before they understood that it would be a battle for hearts and minds. And uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom was really a battle to reach the intellectual elites of Europe and try and prize them away from the uh, cultural and intellectual leadership of the Soviet Union. And I've been reflecting on this book and I do recommend it because I think it speaks to our own times uh, when once again there's sort of a battle for hearts and minds to be won. Uh, uh, Chris Berg and I were talking about China, at, uh, which attempts to use soft power, and it's just lucky for us that um, they're not very good at it. Uh, because the Russians were actually very good at it um, and they had enough of the European mindset to produce some truly wonderful sort of propaganda. Uh, Chinese, not so good. Only seems to work in Africa and places where they don't have much choice in the matter. Um, but it's it also, does... It's also interesting to think... Sorry to jump in there, Scott. No, it's please do. To think that um, many of these institutions that were established by the US for deliberate soft power have been um, uh, shut down or, or made defunct or certainly don't form a big part of um, soft cultural power anymore. And we are relying on the private sector and private culture and, um, uh, and, and social movements to provide that, that soft power. Now, I'm not sure that this is the, the environment in which you would want to reestablish a Congress of cultural freedom. I don't know that you want a Voice of America or whether that would be effective in the ideological battles that we're yeah. fighting today. Radio so Free Europe used to broadcast Radio into Europe. the Iron Curtain, yep. I think, but it is interesting to think of um, the West's soft power as now solely private soft power. So it's the soft power of Nike and the Simpsons and Marvel. Bill Gates. Reason, Bill Gates. Um, and that makes it vulnerable in some ways because, as, as we have discussed many times on this program, um, uh, some of the modern, like Marvel movies, um, wouldn't want to offend China because of the size of the Chinese market. Same with the NBA, all these sorts of things. But it, but it is also probably more powerful because it's not obviously a government speaking. It's a um, it's a culture speaking. 
Yeah, no, that's that's true. And 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 once it was discovered that the CIA had provided that funding, it was absolutely dead in the water. Yeah. And um, you know, the, only people like me say so what. Um, and, and of course, the CIA yeah, in, <laughs> and and the CIA in 1950 was a very different beast to what it to what it later became as well. But um, by the time you got to the 60s, that was that was an argument which was which was way too subtle. So um, well, be careful, Scott, because there are plenty of lunatics on Twitter who are, would love to get the idea that we're being funded by the CIA. So uh, oh, yeah. If- if only, if, if only, <laughs> if, if, if the ambassador's listening, I'll, I'll give you the bank account details and we'll see what we can do. No, no, no. Um, uh, unnecessary, of course, because we we now have approximately 6,000 IPA members who actually allow us to do what we do, including this podcast. If you'd like to join, go to our website. Um, Gideon, what have you been watching so I had two potential culture picks this week. One is a book I'm reading on the interwar period, essentially, on the two world wars and the period between. And like Scott, I want to read it because of possible analogies to our own times. But the second one was a movie about psychedelics, so I went with it with the fun one. Um, <laughs> this is a movie, a Netflix movie, which just came out called Have a Good Trip. Um, it is about... Uh, it's about acid, essentially, LSD and other psychedelics. But, uh, you know, drug law reform is a personal interest of mine. And at this point, or, or you know, I should point out that uh, it's not necessarily a priority for the Institute of Public Affairs, but it is a an intellectual interest of mine. And this movie looks at, you know, famous people and they've got a star-studded cast. They've got Anthony Bourdain and Carrie Fisher and Sting, Ben Stiller, telling their stories about acid trips, essentially good, bad, and ugly. Uh, it talks a little bit about the the experimental psychology that was done around the time of LSD and the acid revolution at its peak in the 1960s. And I guess knowing more about the drug makes you understand that ethic and that culture from the 60s and the, the peace and love vibe that emerged during that time, which of course anybody who's read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas will be able to tell you, you know, that bubble sort of burst as it were in the 1970s. And I would have liked to see more about the contemporary, uh, I mean, there was a bloke there who does a lot of work with microdosing and a lot of experimental psychology with LSD, but I would like to see more about the possible medical applications for LSD because from what I can tell, I mean, we hear a lot about medical cannabis and the the therapy that that can enable. But I think there is a lot more evidence of the potential applications of LSD for mental health disorders, for, um, uh, for you know, they say anybody who's, who's taken it will tell you that it's it's it can result in a phenomenon or, you know, sort of an epiphany that will be like six hours therapy in, or six years therapy in six hours. So I would have liked to see a little bit more of the serious side about what could be done if, if, the regulatory organ of the state was lifted from the potential innovation in this field, but it is a very entertaining movie, very interesting. Production values are absolutely first rate. They animate these, uh, they, they showcase these acid trip stories with animations, with reenactments, with actors I recognise from series like Modern Family and Parks and Recreation. In fact, um, Nick Offerman, who played Ron Swanson on that series, is the host and does a very, very good job. They have a sort of side gag where they have a series of corny, you know, after-school VHS specials where they talk about, you know, drugs aren't hip and things like that and sort of parody that style. So very, very entertaining, very much worth a watch for the great many of us who are scraping the bottom of their Netflix barrel right now and uh, highly recommend it. No, no, I did. I did actually watch half an hour of it. It was, it was, uh, it was interesting. Very, very much, you know, pro LSD. Um, the thing, uh, rather than debating that, the thing I thought it, it perhaps lacked was um, Jordan Peterson is very very interested on, interesting on on psychedelics, and it's all very well to talk about what the experience of a trip might be like. But Jordan Peterson uh, in Twelve Rules for Life and in his videos makes the point that what what psychedelics overcome is essentially sort of the the, the filtering mechanism by which our brains process information. Um, you know, we live in a, uh, a simulacrum of the world is, is his point. It's not really what it looks like, um, what we see out of our eyes and hear, because actually there's, there's just such a tremendous amount of information that comes to us 
every second that our brains would bloody explode uh, if, if we had to uh, try and process it all. So we, we filter a lot out. We use uh, heuristics. We, we um, use these sort of imaginary reconstructions of the world and we expect people to behave in certain ways. We, we don't notice all the detail of a car that's coming towards us. We just know that there's this car-like object and we best get out of the road. And um, I didn't see any of that in the show about actually understanding about what is the function of the brain that psychedelics are overcoming because that that to me is help is what actually then helps you understand you know what's the risk reward of getting right into psychedelics because mm. you know as as they said you know and they're, they're not in, completely ignorant they do say do not drive if you're going <laughs> to do this shit do not drive because you can't yeah. you can't process the information and i think uh oh well you know i think there's some fascinating stuff there uh, yeah and look i would have liked to see more of that and i mean look to be fair to the filmmakers they do tell some you know ben, ben stiller and a few others talk about some of the the bad trips you can have and all sorts of other things but yeah look i i don't think and it, and it wasn't intended to be a scientific documentary it's more of an entertaining sort of a flick but i would have liked to as as you said see more of what it does to the brain because i hope that i'm not giving people the impression that I'm, I'm I'm encouraging everybody to go out and you know have a tab of acid and go frolicking in the hills. It's a it's an extremely powerful drug, and on the wrong people can have very serious and and frightening effects. Um, and, and we should also clarify, it's illegal. Oh, that <laughs> yes, that's true as well. But I'm not I'm not I'm not going to stick up for the nanny state. But um, but uh, but look, it is an interesting. You know, it, it sort of raises the broad the underlying philosophical the philosophical point that whole communities in the US have been engulfed by the opioid crisis, which largely comes or starts with um, prescription drugs, which are legally manufactured and, and given out and so on. And yet for accidents of history, other substances like cannabis and LSD and others have not been harnessed and explored to possibly not their recreational potential, but their medical potential. And, uh, you know, in the middle of a health crisis, you you, you, you sort of, you, you can, like this one that we're in, you, you can have a, a look at our health infrastructure and, and the way we deal yep. with health in the West such as it is yeah, and so think there might be a better way. No, that, that, that's a fair point that uh, you got to look at the context. Psychedelics may not be the biggest, biggest worry on the drug front. I think it was the great Dave Chappelle who said um, the only way Americans are ever really going to start getting worried about the opioid crisis is if black people start taking fentanyl. Yeah. <laughs> then, it'll, then it'll be a crisis and they'll start part, making more laws about it. But at the moment, because it's white people and it's all prescription drugs, um, uh, it seems to pass without too much comment. But anyway, that's Dave Chappelle. That's not a pr IPA-approved comment. Um, <laughs> And neither was anything Gideon said either. So, uh, that, no, that's all good. Uh, great culture pick there. Um, you have been listening to Looking Forward, a podcast of the IPA. Please do go to our website, ipa.org.au, to see uh, some of our other great podcasts, including uh, the Viral Banter, which is a Generation Liberty program, and uh, the Young IPA podcast. And, of course, The Heretic, uh, presented by Gideon Rosner, uh, you can find details about that and where you can listen on our website or just go to your usual podcast platforms. I'd like a big thank you today to my co-host, Chris Berg from RMIT. Thank you, Scott. Director of Policy at the IPA, Gideon Rosner. Thank you, Scott. And Josh in the virtual studio, thanks again for putting this show together. Uh, I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA. Thank you. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. Looking Forward.